the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is the first part of episode 0.19. Signs. All of these odd episodes are designed to help us build our Pope Colored Glasses so we can look at history together. A few quick notes before we begin. First, inspired by the fact that at least on some platforms there appears to be no cap on the size of show notes, I'm trying to get better at sharing my reference resources there. They say doctors make the worst patients, and this librarian has been the worst at following best practices when it comes to sources cited and referenced. It will still be an incomplete list. I'm not going to be listing things like the Bible and the Catechism every time because I don't want the list to become noise, but yes, you'll be seeing more resources that are freely available to the public in the show notes. And as always, if you want to know more about something I say, including where I got my information, feel free to just ask by emailing me at popularhistory at gmail.com. I'm literally a librarian. I will never take offense at someone doing that kind of supplemental research or fact-checking. A second, this certainly isn't my first episode with anticipatory cross-references to future episodes, but there are a lot of them in this episode, so I figure I'll go ahead and give my reasoning for that. It's not just hype for future episodes, though sure, there's that, but it's also meant to help make this world-building series a more useful tool on the whole. Obviously, the future references aren't immediately useful, given that the episodes aren't out yet if you're listening on the day of release. But the reality is, I know most of you won't be doing that, as my audience is slowly but surely growing as word spreads and people find the show. Most of you are catching up through the back catalog, and while I love and appreciate those of you listening in the early days before all the future episodes I'll be referencing are out, I also love and appreciate those of you just catching up. I've caught up my... I myself have caught up on the archives of a lot of podcasts, so I feel you. The future references are here for you, archive bingers. I am going to start dispensing with giving the episode names generally, and I'm just going to go by their numbering to make the references shorter for everyone. Third, you may have caught me mentioning... Third, you may have caught me mentioning during Patrick's birthday episode that this episode, op.19, had swelled to two parts. And the reality is, it's actually a three-parter at present. And the reality is, it's officially a three-parter at present. I genuinely believe it will not go to four parts, but I'm going to stop tempting fate by guaranteeing that, as I also genuinely believed it would not go to two and then three parts. Heck, I even genuinely believed once upon a time that there would be only two of these world-building episodes. As you might have noticed, there's a few more than that. Fourth and finally, I do have some overall show updates and an exciting announcement about an upcoming show, but I'm going to save all that for part two of this episode when it comes out tomorrow, because this episode is already going to be a long one and I need to get going on it already. Come on, Greg. Okay, so now we're at the part where I say, at least for those of you who are listening to these as they come out, and like I said moments ago, I'm aware that's not most of you, so I'll be brief. But for myself and for early adopters, it's been a minute. So let's review where we're at and where we're going in a bit more detail. Since episode 0.14, we've been looking at the Second Testament of the Bible, a term which I favor over New Testament, to help remove unconscious bias against Jewish folks. We did look at the Catholic view of the First Testament, aka the Old Testament, in the first seven odd episodes, followed by a five-part arc on ancient Rome until Augustus. 
both because understanding Rome is helpful for understanding Catholicism, and because I wanted to. And then we explored the years between the texts, in 0.13 on the Hasmoneans and the emerging Herodians. Now, we're six episodes into our 20-episode rosary-themed review of the Second Testament, meaning we've made it to the Luminous Mysteries. If you don't know what a Luminous Mystery is, or for that matter, what a rosary is, don't worry, we'll get there. Just, uh, not today. 0.28 will be here soonish, and we'll go into the rosary then. For today's purposes, just know that the first luminous mystery is the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. So, let's get into it. Jesus, I think you're fairly up to date on, as he's been a major player in the last several episodes, and spoiler alert, that's something that will continue. The Jordan is a river, but not just any river. It's the river that needed to be crossed to enter the Holy Land, back in what some folks might call the Book of Joshua, but we call episode 0.2. The imagery of crossing over from the desert into the Promised Land is very much at play here. As for baptism, we introduced that in some detail, back when we focused in on Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist himself, back in episode 0.15, though you'd be forgiven for forgetting since that was in November. To quickly recap, baptism is a sacrament that removes all sin from a person, including original sin, which Catholic teaching says we all have as descendants of Adam and Eve, something we discussed way back in Op.1. Baptism is a one-time thing, so historically some folks, such as apparently the Emperor Constantine, would put off receiving baptism until their deathbed because it was a lot easier to get a ceremonial bath than it was to go the confession-slash-penance route for any sins you might commit after baptism, especially given the harsher-than-modern penances that were common in the early church, not to mention the uh, public nature of confession in the early years. I also saw some theories that basically you couldn't do the confession thing twice, so basically you had Baptism as your first chance of forgiveness, confession as your second chance, and then you were done. Um, I'm not sure if that's actually accurate, but uh, I saw someone talking about that. My guess is we don't really know for sure um, when it comes to the earliest years, because, well, that's kind of how looking at the earliest years of Christianity tends to work. Now, I described baptism as a sacrament there, and I've actually brought up the notion of a sacrament a few times before this episode, but I didn't go into it because I knew this would be a natural spot to really dive in. So, let's dive in with that full immersion and look at the seven sacraments from a Catholic perspective, starting with baptism. Well, actually, starting with what a sacrament is, because I can't just keep throwing that word out there and not defining it. According to paragraph 1131 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, quote, The sacraments are efficacious signs of grace, instituted by Christ and entrusted to the Church, by which the divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. Now, while I'm sure it's completely accurate, hence why it made it into the Catechism, that definition might be a bit too wordy. Perhaps a shorter version might help. In his signature work called The Sentences, Peter Lombard defines a sacrament as, quote, a sign of God's grace and the form of invisible grace in such a way as to carry its image and be its cause. Of course, that's still kind of something of the highfalutin gobbledygook you might expect from a 12th century scholastic. I mean, come on, in such a way as to carry its image and be its cause? Give me a break. A third definition that at least benefits from being shorter is one that's stuck with me through the years. Though I admit I'm pulling this one from my head rather than from a specific source. When I tried to track it down, I eventually concluded it might be from Stephen Field's work on Carl Rayner called Being as Symbol, 
but I've never read that book, and it would have taken it in by Mr. Meenan during undergrad. Uh, either way, both Fields and Rayner are Jesuits. So take this definition with the biggest grain of salt yet. With all those cautions, sacrament definition number three, an outward sign of an interior grace that causes what it signifies. Now, in a bit of a controversy that's going to be familiar from the umpteen other times that we've had this sort of discussion, you'll notice that none of those definitions comes attached with a handy list of sacraments, and neither does the Bible, even though pretty much every Christian group agrees with the basic concept of sacraments in general. So, as you can probably imagine, there are a lot of different lists of which of these signs of grace actually counts as a sacrament with baptism and marriage making basically every such list, and when folks list just three, the third is probably communion, aka the Eucharist. Of course, as I mentioned, Catholics have seven sacraments, and if you want to jot down the seven so you can have a sense of the full picture, and so that you can put descriptions next to them as we go, by all means, do that. Leave yourself some uh, space. According to the Catechism, the seven sacraments are as follows. Quote, Baptism, Confirmation or Chrismation, Eucharist, Penance, Anointing of the Sick, Holy Orders, and Matrimony. Now, Obviously, I've been going on and on about our Pope-colored glasses for literally years now, so I'm not just going to jump ship suddenly and disagree with the Catechism on what the seven sacraments are. But I still have my own personal lens, and let me tell you, I do have some qualms here, not with the actual sacraments identified, but with the names given. And uh, future Greg, with some hindsight, I'm now realizing that chrismation is probably listed separately, because that's the preferred term in the Eastern Church. Anyways, we'll go ahead and go with my rant from before I realized that. And future Greg. Now, baptism is fine as far as official names go, though you might also hear it christening. But you can't be out here giving chrismation as an alternate name for confirmation while acting like everyone calls it Eucharist and no one says communion. For one thing, the Eucharist is the bread and wine having been made the body and blood, but that's the name for the species of the sacrament, while the act itself is pretty universally called receiving communion. As for penance, yes, I have heard folks call the sacrament itself penance, but mostly penance is what you do as the final step of that sacrament, while clearer and just as common names for that sacrament include reconciliation and confession though I suppose calling confession runs into the same issue that penance does by emphasizing a specific part of the process, though one near the beginning rather than the end. When it comes to anointing of the sick, yeah, that's definitely the more common term for it, but I refuse to let the somewhat obsolete but absolute banger of a name of extreme unction die. Holy orders is fine. Ordination is the name for the actual act, but I'm used to holy orders being the term given on lists like this, so yeah, fine, whatever. But my last grievance is on matrimony, and I suppose it goes back to that same point of contention I had with confession. If we're okay listing alternate names for things, and apparently we are because that's what we did for confirmation, why on earth is the term marriage not also given a nod here? I know matrimony is the more specifically churchy-sounding name, not to mention it being more formal, but really? You have the option of ignoring whether something sounds outdated to be used as the official catechism-listed name for a sacrament, and you held on to matrimony, but let go of extreme unction? I'm sorry, catechism translator folks, but you done messed up here. Nuts enough about names, at least for now. You know I'm going to keep bringing it up, though. At the very least, you have absolutely not heard the last of extreme unction. We'd need to actually do those deeper dives that keep promising. Baptism. We know the why of baptism. To cleanse of sin, including original sin. And how exactly washing with physical water does that is somewhat irrelevant because it is specifically a thing Jesus told us to do. 
There is also the argument that we humans have physical bodies, and so to engage our whole selves fully, it's only natural that all of the sacraments have physical components. And I can feel corrections coming with all these sacramental descriptions I'll be going through, so I'm just going to say email them to popularhistory at gmail.com, and thank you for helping improve the accuracy of the show. That said, I'm actually fairly confident in all the descriptions I'm going to give, including this one of baptism's parameters, but we're running into the same basic issue as our Rome series. This material is really well known by folks who have spent more time on it than I will ever be able to, and rightly so, given the fundamental importance of it. As I understand it, a substantial chunk of the work of canon lawyers is going over individual cases to determine whether a given sacrament was administered correctly, with some pretty serious implications possible if the answer is no. For instance, recently, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, a.k.a. the CDF, a.k.a. the Vatican's main department for figuring out what is and isn't church teaching and how to apply that teaching to different scenarios, you can think about them like the Vatican's Attorney General if that helps. I would say the Supreme Court, but just like the U.S., the Vatican has a separate one of those called the Prefect of the Apostolic Signatura. Anyway, by way of example, in 2020, the CDF ruled the following verbal formula for baptism invalid. See if you can spot why. We baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The sticking point is the first word, saying, we baptize you, instead of, I baptize you. What the ruling of invalid meant was that no baptism takes place at all when that verbal substitution is made, and that wound up being a pretty serious problem for an American priest whose own baptism, or who learned that apparently they had nothing that they could call their own baptism, video of what they had considered their baptism notwithstanding, because the video proved the we formulation was used. Therefore, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, Reverend Matthew Hood was not a reverend. He was not even a Christian, and had never been one. Everyone who thought they had been going to Mass with Father Hood for the last several years had been going to a social club with a non-Christian heading it, and everyone who had been going to him for confession had been unloading their sins and seeking forgiveness, not so much from a layman as from a straight-up non-Christian, apparently. Now, you might call this patently ridiculous, and I recall being tempted to do so at the time. Heck, it's even possible I did. But in the end, this is a good example of what's at stake when it comes to meeting the minimum requirements for a sacrament. In the case of baptism, though the example just given may give a different impression, the requirements are actually really easy to meet. You need to use water, you need to say the right words. In English, the authorized translation is, quote, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, end quote. And you need to be intending to do what the church does when they baptize someone. The water is what's known as matter, and the words used are what's known as form, matter and form being two elements that come together to make a sacrament. When the Vatican analyzes a case, they consider both the matter and the form, and there could be an issue, also known as a defect, with either. In the case of Wegate, it was a defect of form, because the words were wrong. If someone had been messing around and had filled the holy water font with Pepsi instead of water, well, first I hope someone would have noticed, but also that would be an example of a defect in matter, because the material itself was wrong. Another sense in which there can be an issue with the material of a sacrament is if the intended recipient of the sacrament is ineligible. For example, if they've already been baptized, a person cannot be rebaptized because, from the Catholic perspective, a baptized person isn't considered valid material for baptism. In cases of uncertainty, such as a babies found on doorsteps, 
conversions from other denominations where practices may vary and may not be well documented, and emergency baptisms where one might legitimately question things like how swampy the water was, an approach called conditional baptism is used, in which the baptismal formula starts with, quote, if you are not yet baptized, end quote. The Catholic Church does not rebaptize folks, because baptism is considered an indelible, that is to say, unerasable, mark on a person's soul, marking them out for Christ. Of course, in the Catholic view, just because you've been cleansed of sin through baptism doesn't mean you're guaranteed to go to heaven. You can still sin, and that sin still has consequences, including mortal sin, which fractures your relationship with God. I know some of my listeners are screaming out Romans 8, 38-39 right now, and yes, this is a major area of disagreement between Catholicism and Orthodoxy on the one hand, and Protestantism on the other. And keep in mind I use those terms broadly, without nuance, sorry Anglicans. Anyhow, Catholics do not believe in the notion that is most conveniently summed up as once saved, always saved. We'll definitely be getting into this more later, especially in Ot.29. While we're talking about how things can go wrong, we should circle back to our canon lawyers looking for defects in the administration of the sacraments. As we do, two quick notes. First, I'm no canon lawyer, so don't take any of this as canon legal advice if you're in need of any. Second, when I describe canon lawyers as looking for defects, that's not automatically a negative thing. The fatherhood case I mentioned was an extreme example of someone, or actually a whole congregation, getting bad news canonically. But first off, I can call him fatherhood, because he was soon baptized validly and ordained, and secondly, sometimes folks are hoping that there was some sort of defect in the administration of a sacrament. And by sometimes, I mean when the sacrament in question is marriage and the union has gone south. But we're still on baptism. Kind of. We're circling back to the canon lawyers because there are two degrees by which they can find a defect in the administration of a sacrament. One that makes the sacrament completely invalid, which is what happened in the fatherhood case, and which is definitely the biggie because it means, according to the church, the sacrament never happened. And the other scenario is less severe, where a sacrament may be valid, but not licit. In the case of an illicit sacrament, the sacrament did happen, but someone might be in trouble from a church law perspective. For example, if I recall correctly, you can load up a super soaker and start baptizing folks from yards away and making a whole game out of it, and as long as the basic requirements of matter and form are met, such baptism would be valid. But, and I cannot emphasize this enough, you should not do that, because it would be illicit. Doing a valid baptism is easy, providing you don't monkey around with the words. You just need water, and someone who hasn't already been baptized, and you need to be intending to do what the church does when they baptize someone. Note that you don't even have to be a baptized Christian yourself. Anyone can baptize someone. That said, just because anyone can baptize someone doesn't mean anyone can baptize anyone, not just because of the previously noted impossibility of rebaptism, but also because the final requirement is that baptism requires some degree of consent on the part of the baptized. Which brings us to the second big fat area of contention on the topic of baptism, infant baptism. But I seriously need to finish talking about valid versus licit before we get into that, so hang on a minute, and then we'll circle back. As much fun as trolling the CDF with a super soaker baptism party sounds, treating spiritual things frivolously can have consequences. You could end up placed under interdict, excommunicated, or, if you're a priest, laicized. More on all that in episode 0.28. If you don't want that to happen, you need to make sure you're conducting sacraments in a way that is not only valid, but licit. 
what it actually takes for a sacrament to be licit is going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, in part because perhaps the most common requirement for a sacrament to be licit is that the local ordinary has to sign off on it, and they can refuse to sign off unless you meet whatever requirements they like. Well, uh, probably any requirements. I'm guessing at a certain point, if your ordinary was trolling you with silly restrictions, Rome would intervene, because folks have a basic but not unlimited right to access the sacraments relevant to their life in the church. And it's worth noting that in emergency scenarios, like when someone is in danger of death, the rules for what's licit tend to get a lot more lax. After all, pardon the pun, but there's the ordinary, and then there's the extraordinary. If you're wondering what an ordinary is in Catholicism, simply put, an ordinary is the guy in charge. The Pope is an ordinary worldwide, plus there are thousands of what's called local ordinaries, each with a specific geographic jurisdiction. Generally, the local ordinary is a bishop, although there are also territorial abbeys whose superior is the local ordinary of a certain surrounding area. Given that, I did poke around for any current or former examples of female ordinaries, considering abbesses exist, but no dice, either because there is some specific requirement that local ordinaries be male that I wasn't able to find, or because there isn't a specific requirement, but culturally it isn't the done thing, which is my bet, or because territorial abbeys are just vanishingly rare and the lack of territorial abbesses is a coincidence. Given the aforementioned vanishing rarity of territorial abbots, who, as near as I can tell, are the only geographically specific ordinaries who can also not rightly be called bishops, and the fact that those who know they are under some other kind of ordinary, like a religious superior, I think that's a consideration here, although I need to confirm how the overlapping jurisdictions work when it comes to religious communities versus dioceses, because of all that, I am going to say bishops rather than ordinaries when describing who makes the local call on licit versus illicit sacraments. I'll be sure to timestamp this disclaimer to refer pedants to it in the future. Of course, all of that probably took longer to say than just adding or other relevant authorities after bishops whenever I refuse to say ordinary in the future, but hey, at least that's behind us now, and this way I only have to severely derail things for that clarification once. Okay, so, now that we've covered the universal minimum requirements for baptism, and established the fact that local customs can vary, let's take a look at common baptismal customs that go beyond the bare minimum. And here I want to offer another caveat, because Baptisms have occurred in pretty much every culture, and I know practices vary from community to community, and also, of course, from church to church. Just because a practice isn't on my list here doesn't mean it isn't cool or significant or, heck, common. I have a pretty U.S.-specific experience with all the sacraments, not to mention a bad memory, so I might even forget stuff we did at my own kid's baptism. Bear with me. Fortunately, this is Catholicism. So to set standard expectations, we can refer to the actual rite. That is to say, the actual standard ceremonial process. I'm linking the U.S. rite for a child in the show notes. And yes, we will get into the history and controversy of infant baptism after this overview, but I want folks learning about baptism to know what it is before we talk about the history there, which I know is a bit ironic given how much other stuff I've already been talking about, but well, too bad. First, according to the rite, Sunday is the best day for baptisms. In my experience, they most often take place after Mass. They are a community event, ideally with family and friends, but at least with parents and godparents, who are a couple, typically a couple anyhow, who are responsible for bringing up the child as a Christian alongside their parents, or in the place of their parents in the event that the parents die, or like, change their mind about the whole Christianity thing. 
which is not the most common case, of course, but the church does not want Christians going without Christian education. So not only do they require the parents to agree to raise the kid Christian before they'll proceed with the baptism, but the church has a backup plan for that in the form of godparents. Okay, look, I know it sounds like I took a downer of an emphasis when talking about godparents there, but this is a history show, and kids getting orphaned is a historical reality. Plus, I expect the obligation to raise godchildren as Christians helped guard against orphaned ch children winding up abandoned, though that's unsourced conjecture from yours truly, and not a finding arising from, you know, actual research. If anyone knows either way, let me know. My guess is, even if it may have helped to have basically a second set of parents at the ready, with the added pressure of that connection having been solemnized by the church, it probably wasn't a perfect system. Plus, we saw how wrong even baptism can go with the Mortara case back in Op.17. Of course, originally, baptism was a matter of adult converts rather than little ones, but even then, there is a godparent role to be filled. The emphasis of godparents for adults being baptized is more along the lines of mentoring rather than supplemental or substitute parenting. But yes, even adults seeking baptism in the Catholic Church are required to have a godparent or two. Generally, adults will opt for one, because again, it's not so much an extra set of parents as it is a mentor in the case of adults seeking baptism. Now, I'm letting myself get bogged down with the plenty already, so I'm going to go ahead and skip getting bogged down with the specific requirements for godparents, Though there is another link in the show notes for you, and I'll note that if you have two, one needs to be male and the other female, and anyone serving as an official godparent needs to be a practicing Catholic, though if a godparent is married to a non-Catholic, the non-Catholic partner can be present as what's called a Christian witness. So, folks are gathered. Friends and family, godparent or godparents are there, and Oh, by the way, the priest or deacon is also there, since they'll be the ones doing the actual baptism. Look, I know I mentioned to you earlier you could do it with your trusty super soaker and it would be valid, but keep in mind we're now walking through a valid and licit baptism in ordinary circumstances. So we've scheduled things with the parish and gone through some preparatory classes, and we're going to be using a priest or deacon who has faculties, that is, authorization to carry out sacraments in a given area. Generally, the assumption is it would be the priest or deacon that normally occupies a given parish, and though that is not as strict an expectation as it once was, you're going to want to ask permission if you want to use someone else. Now, that priest or deacon is going to be dressed up a bit. The specific term is vested, a term which you can read as wearing, an alve or surplice, with a stole of festive color. A cope is optional. And yes, we will define these and talk about liturgical garb in episode 0.33, so you can check that out now if it's already out and you can't wait, or you can just roll with it for the moment. The festive color specification brings us to a minor note that some parishes prefer to avoid performing baptisms during Lent since they are festive occasions. But generally, since you never know when you're going to go, and crib death is unfortunately a thing, and I certainly wouldn't want to be the bureaucrats parents are blaming as the cause of their baby dying outside the church for flimsy reasons, well, generally parents are encouraged to have their children baptized within a few weeks of birth when possible, and churches generally accommodate that, regardless of the liturgical season. While I'm over here in the calendar corner, I'll note that Easter Vigil has long been the go-to baptism timing for adults. More to come on Lent in Op.27 and Easter Vigil in Op.29. So the celebrant, that is the priest or deacon, will be vested with their appropriate liturgical garb, which isn't too hard to achieve if this is happening right after Mass, as is most often the case. And it's also frankly hard to avoid if the baptism is happening during Mass, as is sometimes the case. Everyone else is in their Sunday best, which varies from parish to parish, but tends to land somewhere between business casual and business formal, 
with business formal being a safer bet. Men, you probably don't need a tie, but you might. And steer clear of jeans. Women, your clothes mystify me, and I am of the firm opinion that it's not my place to tell you what to wear. Though I know a lot of churches will insist you cover your shoulders, and some of the more traditional ones may expect you to cover your heads or faces with some kind of mantilla or chapel veil as well. Okay, so we know who's there, and generally what they're wearing, but where are they? In the church. Sure, smart Alec. But more specifically, things tend to start off at the back of the church, which is kind of the front of the church since it's where the main entrance opens to. There is a bit of a back-and-front reversal um, in churches when you go in, um, just in terms of terminology. We'll talk about that more at a future time. After an initial exchange, things will most probably move deeper into the church, generally to the front few pews, as a baptism crowd is typically a fair bit smaller than a regular church service. But the idea of this move is to reach whatever setup makes sense for listening to a few scripture readings, a homily, a round of intercessory prayer, and a couple other things. Often, the regular pews, that is, benches, work just as well for baptism as they do for these sorts of things during Mass, hence the relocation to this area. After the readings and intercessions and such, to set your geographic expectations, the group will move again to wherever the baptismal font is, which may be where they had started, given that the back of the church is one of the most common locations for the baptismal font. Now, the back-slash-front location option encourages the folks to encounter the font, reminding them of the notion of baptism on their way in. The font's location does vary a fair bit from church to church, so don't get too hung up on it, but it's going to be either somewhere in the main body of the church or in a separate side area of the church called the baptistry. Okay, the scene is set. The baptism may or may not start with the thematic hymn. Then, the celebrant greets those gathered. Quote, especially the parents and godparents, reminding them briefly of the joy with which the parents welcome this child as a gift from God, the source of life, who now wishes to bestow his own life on this little one. End quote. So if anyone milling around was unaware that they were milling around a baptism specifically, now they know. Then, the priest or deacon or bishop or pope or whoever, though I'm just going to say priest moving forward for simplicity, in the case of an infant, the priest then asks the parents what they want to name their child. This name, the baptismal name, is often, but not always, the same as the name on their birth certificate. And if you happen to be unbaptized and always wanted to change your name but weren't sure how to justify doing it, you could always become Christian and start going by your baptismal name, though there are several limitations to that plan, most of which are your relatively limited options for a Christian name, especially since at this point it has to match your gender assigned at birth, or at least it will probably be expected to match what the church that's baptizing you thinks your gender assigned at birth is and thinks is an appropriate name for that gender. Uh, your mileage may vary on this, just be prepared if that's relevant to your situation. In some cultures, another individual, such as the grandfather, may be asked for the name. If that's desired, that should be discussed with the priest ahead of time. The next standard question, what do you ask of God's church, has the straightforward answer of baptism. Unlike a lot of rites, the exact exchange here can have some variance, though as we saw with fatherhood, the exact formula of the moment of baptism itself does matter. Remember, when it comes to validity, super soaker yes, we instead of I, no. The priest then basically asks the parents and godparents if they're willing to raise the child Catholic, and their yes in response should not be a surprise considering agreeing to that was almost certainly a prerequisite for getting the baptism scheduled with the church secretary. Next, there's a little speech from the celebrant and some forehead cross-tracing from both the celebrant and a few other major players. There's a few insert name here sections in the rites. I'm just going to plug in Snuffleupagus for those portions moving forward. 
because John is boring. No offense to any Johns listening in today. Quote, Snuffleupagus, the Christian community welcomes you with great joy. In its name, I claim you for Christ our Savior by the sign of his cross. I now trace the cross on your forehead and invite your parents and godparents to do the same. End quote. After this praying and tracing, the group moves to wherever they'll be during the readings and intercessions, unless they opt to just stay where they are for that. If they do move, there's a decent chance that movement will be accompanied by a hymn. Hymns are a great way to help mask movement sounds and shuffling. The readings and intercessions are very much like their counterparts during Mass, so I'd say it's safe to say that when a baptism is done during a Mass, those parts are omitted to avoid duplication, though I am specifically refusing to look up that particular version of the rite, because I know if I did, I'd end up sharing that with you as well, and we'd wind up here forever, going through all the iterations. Anyways, more on how the readings and intercessions work when we dive into what Mass actually looks like in Op.31. I did mention that there were a couple of other things occurring during this stage, and I decided not to name them, because I wanted you to focus on the physical movements. And if I told you what those couple other things were, your brain would not follow those movements around the church. Because the couple other things are baby's first exorcism and baby's first anointing. Good, strong, powerful actions. Though theologically, baptism is more powerful still. So, these are just the warm-up. The prayer of exorcism used here isn't exactly Emily Rose type stuff. Quote, Almighty and ever-living God, you sent your only Son into the world to cast out the power of Satan, spirit of evil, to rescue men from the kingdom of darkness, and to bring him into the splendor of your kingdom of light. We pray for this child. Set her free from original sin. Make her a temple of your glory, and send your Holy Spirit to dwell with her. We ask this through Christ our Lord. End quote. Now, here's a tip, since I occasionally come across folks who marvel at how Catholics know what to say and when. If someone says, we ask this through Christ our Lord, I don't care what they said before that. Your answer is, Amen. The prayer for anointing is as follows, quote, We anoint you with the oil of salvation, in the name of Christ our Savior, May he strengthen you with his power, who lives and reigns forever and ever. End quote. And amen. This particular anointing is done on an infant's chest. And I'm not sure why that is, apart from perhaps to avoid a situation where the anointing will be washed away shortly. In order to do that washing away, of course, we need to make our way over to the baptismal font, wherever it may be. While folks are making their way and are quite possibly getting their cameras out, let me tell you what the font is since I neglected to do that earlier. It's a tub. Okay, I was kind of wanting to just leave it at that for comedic effect, but I might as well go on and do as much detail on that as I am on everything else and forget my target length for this episode, because we're barely halfway through the first sacrament and we're normally where I start looking for an exit in terms of word count. Back to the baptismal font. While I am prepared to justify calling it a tub, both for simplicity and comedy, I imagine the church would at least prefer I call it a basin, and of course in terms of word origins, it's etymologically tied to the idea of a fountain, though I'm avoiding that word because that gives the idea of flowing water, which some Protestant churches absolutely insist on to meet a very early church preference for what they call living water. But flowing water is not a priority in modern Catholicism, or orthodoxy for that matter, though I have seen some Catholic baptismal fonts designed to go ahead and keep things flowing. The font is often made of stone, though marble or wood or basically any other similar material may be used. The font at St. Peter's is made of porphyry, which is a sweet purplish red igneous rock that can apparently be polished into awesomeness. Though there isn't much of a requirement in terms of materials, it is theologically important that each individual church building only have one baptismal font to emphasize the one baptism that unites the Christian community. So, no separate baptisms for rich or poor, God forbid, 
and no separate baptisms for infants versus adults. Ideally, any Catholic baptismal font should be large enough for all baptismal purposes, including baptizing an adult with full immersion if that route is chosen. And now we're at the font. So let's talk about the baptism itself, right? No, no, of course not. We've got more prayers and ritual. After the priest offers yet another brief review of why we're here, the water is blessed for several paragraphs, whether, and I kid you not when I say this, whether it needs blessing or not, because it's entirely possible the water currently in the font was blessed as part of Easter Vigil, but that's no excuse for skipping on the blessing of the water. It's blessed again, quote, so that this theme of thanksgiving and petition may find a place in the baptism, end quote. Because, you know, this is the only place in the rite where there is thanksgiving and petition, apparently. Once the water is either blessed or re-blessed, the parents and godparents are guided through a statement of faith, which the rite calls a profession of faith, and which involves a lot of saying, I do, to questions like, do you reject Satan? The rite doesn't specify what the priest is supposed to do if anyone refuses to reject Satan. I suppose you can dust off that exorcism from a few minutes ago, and there are a couple hundred gallons of holy water conveniently at the ready if needed. Finally, we arrive at the actual baptism part. But just so it's all 100% on the record, the priest takes a moment to ask for affirmative consent, saying, quote, Is it your will that Snuffleupagus should be baptized in the faith of the Church, which we have all professed with you? End quote. Presumably, the parents and godparents say it is. At least that's what the rubric now says they say, and then it's time for the actual baptism, with either triple pouring or triple immersion after the words, the Father, then again after, the Son, and finally once more after, the Holy Spirit, by which point the baby is very probably crying heartily if they weren't already. In the kind of universal human moment that every parent Christian or not, will recognize, the baby that someone else just made cry is gently but swiftly handed off to their parents. And now it's time for anointing with chrism. Wait, what's that you say? We've already had anointing? Well, yes, but what about second anointing? You see, the first anointing was with the oil of catechumens, and it was on the breast. This anointing is with the oil of chrism, and it is on the forehead. And let me tell you, Chrism smells good. Get yourself a freshly baptized baby to smell if you can. I can't wait for Gabe's baptism soon. After this second anointing, it's time for a costume change to white garments to symbolize the inner change, the purification from all sin, in an outward way. The baptismal garment follows wedding dress rules, being something white with a certain amount of tension between simple and elegant and fancy slash frilly. For adults, this will tend to be a kind of smock, so that would be uh, on the simpler end, and it would be worn over their church clothes. For infants, it's generally fancier and a bit more of a dedicated outfit, with baby boys looking almost girly with ruffles and baby girls looking... I mean, you've seen pictures of dolled up baby girls, right? Lots of lace and poofiness, on the fancier end, and quite possibly made in whole or in part from mom or grandma's wedding dress, if either is available for such repurposing. Similarly, it's not unusual for a Catholic girl's baptismal outfit to be incorporated into her wedding dress. Next up, a small candle is lit from the Easter candle, aka the Paschal candle, which is, well, a large candle that was blessed at Easter Vigil. This smaller candle, and the baptismal garment itself, will be the principal keepsakes from the baptism. Well, those and the clean soul, but Catholic teaching says the soul is going to need a periodic scrubbing through confession moving forward. After several more prayers and hymns, but zero more exorcisms, the rite concludes, and folks generally transition into party mode on the parish hall, often with punch and gifts. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to note that the main difference in baptisms between Catholicism and Orthodoxy is that in Orthodoxy, baptism is almost always done by full immersion, infants included, 
though an exception can be made if someone is, for example, too infirm for that. When adults are being baptized, natural water sources such as rivers or lakes are ideal. If a font is used, it's quite large and more often for infants. With adults, it's the font's more of a pool. I'm thankful to my Orthodox friend Michael, who was kind enough to answer my questions in our informal conversation. I want to aim to keep Orthodoxy somewhat in mind, because though I'm limiting my scope to Catholicism, Eastern Catholicism is absolutely a thing and should not be forgotten. Though, as I've mentioned before, unfortunately, if we want to build our generic Pope-colored glasses as authentically as possible, a fair amount of forgetting about the East would fit that theme. But, thankfully, that does seem to be, very gradually, changing. And even if that weren't the case, I don't want to embrace that blind spot too closely anyways, as it's not only a shame, but it's wrong. Within Orthodoxy, right after baptism, including right after the baptism of an infant, the baptized individual is administered Holy Communion, which sounds really very cute, and I admit to being jealous. With the fact that within Orthodoxy, infants even receive communion in mind, let's take a minute to touch base on the controversy over infant baptism you may be familiar with. It's a big controversy point for Protestants, and as a reminder, yes, I am using labels like Protestant very sweepingly for simplicity. If you want to avoid causing offense yourself, you might not want to follow my lead on that. But bottom line, infant baptism is standard within Catholicism. So for the purposes of our show, it is the default practice. And it is not controversial for the purposes of our show. After all, if infant baptism is efficacious in wiping away original sin, and the church says it is, why wouldn't you want that for your child? And yet, so the logic goes, infants are too young to sin beyond that original sin, keeping in mind that intent is required for all other sin. So there is no need for children to go to confession, and indeed, from the post-Trent Roman Catholic perspective, kids who are too young to understand what communion is should not take part in it. In 1910, under Pope St. Pius X, the age for First Communion was reined in to about seven. Prior to that, local custom varied, with seven being on the lower end and fourteen being on the higher end, and of course, Prior to that general vague ban on communion for kids, they did receive communion. You know, back when East and West were generally united most of the time, except for when they weren't, which, yes, we will explore. Uh, but for now, let's put a pin in communion, and on East versus West, for the moment, because we've got other sacraments to cover. We are going to cover them on other days, though, because we are out of time for today. As always, I want to thank Vice Pope, Mrs. Popular History, and our logo designer, Russ. I also want to thank Isaac, our own personal Jesus, who I did um, finish editing back into episode 0.18. So that should be good to go now. We're going to continue this exploration tomorrow. Thank you for listening. God bless y'all. <laughs>